There. Uh, this, everything gets recorded. Uh, so let me say uh, Psalm 45 today. And if you want to use your mobile phones, you will find that there is a passage there for you and an outline and everything at www.simplygod.net. Just click on Sundays and everything's there for you. Psalm 45. Our series is Jesus' glory before he entered our world. This is number six and the final in the series. Stephen has already prayed. So I'm going to jump right in. I will read Psalm 45. Listen to this. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness and therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia and from ivory palaces stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour and at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many coloured robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers will be your sons, and you'll make them princes in all the earth. And I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Now, whether you like it or not, Christmas is here. Okay, just a few more sleeps, and then it's Christmas. Now, whether you know this or not, Christmas is actually a mixture of a whole lot of religions. I don't know if, I don't know if you know that. So Yuletide, which we don't really do, but Americans seem to do it. Yuletide is actually after the Scandinavian god Yule, the god of fertility. And that's where Yuletide and Yuletide carols comes from. Wreaths, if you have a wreath, that is an ancient Wiccan tradition. And the Wiccan priests used to make wreaths out of herbs and things like that to ward off evil spirits. Mistletoe, you know you go under the mistletoe and you get your smooch. Mistletoe is from Asterix, (laughs) not really. 
But you know Druid gets a fix. It's from the Druids. And mistletoe was that special thing that they would use in their potions. If you decorate a tree, that tradition comes from the god Saturn. That was called a Saturnalia tree. And you decorated it in honor of the god Saturn. Gifts at night comes from Odin and Thor. And they used to meet, uh, the gods would traditionally bring you gifts on that special night of the year. Santa's sleigh, that comes from Odin's chariot. Odin had a horse, would you believe it? How do you cross a horse and an octopus? Because he had a horse with eight legs. And um, that's where Santa's sleigh comes from. But above all else is the 25th of December. The 25th of December was set aside in honor of the sun god, uh, the god of Mithras, the cult Mithras, uh, which the Roman emperors and the army were used to. And, and every 25th of December, the sun was reborn. And that's where all our Christian traditions come from. But the average Australian is like, dude, don't spoil it. Christmas is about eating, drinking, swimming, barbing, family, friends, let's just be merry, okay? Don't get technical, you know? Just be merry. I don't know what there is to be merry about, but I've got the day of work, so let's just be merry. Well, I want to tell you if I've just spoiled your Christmas. Actually, Christians have so much to be merry about. It's true, Jesus probably was not born on the 25th of December, whatever. Biblical Christians take any opportunity to rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ. We love it. We, not, we love it. We'll join in. Because for us, the birth of Jesus is the best news ever. We celebrate his birth although we don't know when he was born. Why do we celebrate Jesus' birth? Well, why do you celebrate your wife's birth? Because if your wife wasn't born, you wouldn't have got married to her. The reason you are so happy your wife was born is because you ended up being married to her. If she wasn't born, you wouldn't be married, right? And so you celebrate if Jesus hadn't been born, we couldn't have the ultimate love story. The ultimate love story. And that's what I want to show you from Psalm 45. Because our series is about the glory of Jesus even before he was born. And Psalm 45 tells us about his love life. And how in the end he gets married. So for today... As we close off the year, the glory of the bridegroom and his bride. Psalm 45. Have a look with me in the passage in front of you. Two points this morning, two simple things. Number one, the bridegroom is blessed forever because of his triumphant grace. The bridegroom is blessed forever because of his triumphant grace. Look with me at verse 1. Ah, Dwayne. My Bible's got writing before verse 1. I hope yours does. Because that is actually inspired. 
pay no attention to the italics, that's just the translator. The, the, the little thing you've got there, to the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song, that is, those are the words of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the Bible. And so look with, it, look with me, to the choir master, according to the Lilies, a love song. Psalm 45 is a love song. In fact, why is it according to the lilies? Because lilies was a common Jewish wedding garland. The bride used to wear a garland of lilies. And it's a love song. Because it's a song about the bridegroom and his bride. No doubt the writer is thinking primarily of of. Probably Solomon marrying the Queen of Sheba. But that's not, it doesn't tell us that. The main thing is that there is this bridegroom and there there is this bride. And of course, lilies speaks of purity. Here is the purity of the bridegroom and the purity of the bride. And I want to tell you it's a love story. I don't know how uh, morantic you're feeling this morning, but this is a love story. And every, ah, look, every love story, even Shrek, flows from this love story. This is the love story. Every other love story flows and is a small little picture of this love story. Let's look at it together. Number one, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. Literally, the word pleasing theme, literally, is good news. Another way of saying that is gospel. My heart overflows with a gospel. That's what it's saying. Because the gospel is a love story. And it flows out of my heart. This is, this is called a gush word. Do you know what a gush word is? Do you know what a gush word is? So lean over to a grandmother. Push a button on her shoulder saying, tell me about your grandchildren. That's a gush word. You're trapped for the next half an hour. People you don't know, you'll know about how they're doing at school, everything. Go to Dwayne. Tap him on the shoulder. Just say the word ocean. And you're trapped. You're stuck. Yeah, for half an hour, I'll tell you about, you know. Those are gush words. Everyone's got a gush word. Everyone's got something they can talk forever about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the Christian's gush word. Wake me up at two in the morning, say Jesus, and I'll tell you happy things. Which is the only way to do evangelism. Why do the Jehovah Witnesses have such a hard time? Because when they come to your door, it's not flowing out of their heart. They are there to tell you, you are wrong and they are right. And when Christians start doing that, it's all over. Look what the writer says. Out of my heart flows the good news. Jesus is my happiest thing. Please don't tell people about Jesus just because you think he's true and they're wrong. Tell them about Jesus when you love him. And it flows from your heart. You don't think people will know what you love? If you think Christianity is true, you've missed half of Christianity. It's not just true. It's beautiful. If you don't think so, you don't know it. 
So what's the gospel about? My heart overflows with good news, with a pleasing theme. I address my verses uh, to the king, really better way, uh, uh, about the king, concerning the king. So what's the good news about? It's about a king. That's what the gospel is about. That's why in Romans 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ concerning, sorry, the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus. The gospel is all about a king. Look what it says. My heart overflows with a pleasing thing. I address my verses about the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scrub. I'm so keen to tell you guys. I can't wait to tell you this. Yeah, what? What's so special? What's so special? Look at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. What's so special about the king? He's very handsome. <laughs> what a letdown, eh? Everyone's like, ah, what a put something else. Yeah? Well, hold on, hold on. When it says you are the most handsome of men, first of all, that word it's in Hebrew, it's repeated. It's a double. What it's saying is that you're not just quali- uh, sorry, quantitatively more handsome than other men. You're in a category of your own. That's what it means. It, this isn't, um, you know, comparative language. This isn't like, okay, so Isaac is ugly, but Dwayne is better looking, right? But David is even handsomer. And, oh my goodness, you know, who was it? You know, who's the Star Wars guy? Because I think he's good looking, but whatever. You know, it doesn't work. No, Tom Holland, he's the new thing. You know, it, it, that's not what the writer's saying. And you know what, God is even better looking than Tom Holland. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you are in a category all of your own. What's so handsome about the king? Well, you should see his nose. You should see his eye. And hopefully not hair, but... No, look what it says. This is what makes the king so amazing. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Here's why. Grace is poured upon your lips. The most beautiful thing about this king is grace. This is what makes the king attractive. It's not his jawline or his cleft. What do you call this thing? It's not that. It is his grace. This is what makes him beautiful. What is grace? It is, it, it's his endless givingness. His grace. This guy, this king, is a giver. And it makes him stunningly beautiful. Look what it says. You are the most handsome of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This is a king who never stops giving. But he doesn't just give to people who deserve it because that's generous. He's better than generous. Grace is he gives to people who don't deserve it. 
That's what makes him amazing and beautiful. And it all comes, I don't get the lips part. Grace is poured upon your lips. Well, because this king's grace comes to us through his words. Grace flows from his mouth. Grace is poured on your lips. You are the most, everything you say is so full of grace. The channel of his givingness is through his mouth. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This king's heart is so full of grace that it just pours out of his mouth. And his words are saturated in grace all the time. There's no one like this. He's in a category of his own. Let's think. Moses. Moses was a nice guy. What flowed out of his mouth? Law and some grace. But law. What flows out of Muhammad's mouth? Submit or else. What flows out of Buddha's mouth? Make it up yourself. And if you get it wrong, don't worry, you'll come back and pay for it. That's what flows out of his mouth. What flows out of the mouth of Jesus? Grace upon grace upon grace. He came into our world. His whole life was carried to rise by grace. He left his father's glory and was born in an animal feeding trough. Grace. He lived and acted and spoke with grace. In Luke 4 we read the crowd said, What? Such gracious words from his mouth. He died for his bride, as I try to explain to the children. Talk about grace. He rose again and he's now he's our priest, arguing for us, pleading for us. Talk about grace. He pours out his spirit to live within us, to whisper in our hearts, I love you. I'm still for you. I'm coming back to get you. Grace. And he will come back to receive us to himself. Triumphant grace. But don't anyone here think grace is weakness? Because look at verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. This is what makes him so beautiful. Is this juxtaposition of grace and power. You know, we look at some people and go, you're so powerful, but gee, not a very nice person. You're such a nice person, but you're such a weakling. And you get two together. Here is this king who is mighty and yet filled with grace and splendor and majesty. And so what does he do with his power? He gathers people to himself. Look, look, verse 4. In your majesty, ride out victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. How does this king conquer people? How does he do it? It tells you. How does he conquer people? His arrows 
pierce their hearts. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces through your heart. You do not see any biblical Christianity ever trying to conquer people so that they come under biblical Christianity. What you see is the preaching and the teaching of the sharp words of the king. And what the king does is he pierces hearts. And what do people do? They fall under him. They submit to him from the heart. Anyone over six feet who does gym can make someone fall down with their body. Who can conquer your heart except the king of grace? And that's what he does. And, and I know I'm talking to a whole lot of people who right now would put up their hand and say, yes, that happened to me, Dwayne. Nothing can stop people from becoming Christians. Nothing. Nothing can stop people from becoming Christians. When the king decides to conquer someone, there ain't nothing anyone can do. And so he rules forever. Look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. I don't know if it ever struck you that God is full of hate. Does that jar with you? Does that trouble you? Well, hate is a beautiful human emotion. Hate is a beautiful, pure emotion. Human beings were meant to hate. But, before anyone, everyone's going, come back, I'm not finished that sentence. But, we were not designed to hate other people. We were not designed to hate whatever gets in our way. No, look at what the king hates. He hates wickedness. Human beings were designed to hate wickedness. When the serpent came into that garden that Adam and Eve were meant to look after, they should have hated him. When he started talking, did God, you don't talk to me, I'm not listening. That's what they should have done. We were meant to hate lying. We were designed to hate exploitation. We were created to hate racism. We were made to hate violence. We were designed to fight against greed and exploitation and abuse because the king hates those things. He's never going to change his mind. He's never going to get used to them. The king will never, ever get tired of hating wickedness. He'll never change his mind. He'll never go soft. He's never going to soften his stance. And those who cling to wickedness and those who love wickedness, well, 
they'll turn out to make him their enemy. Do you know how ugly it is that we live in a world where people hate righteousness and love wickedness? Now look, everyone can see I'm old. Did you know, young people, did you know that the way you talk about having sex with a girl is that you smash her? He smashed her. You know, I'm old. Okay, I'm old, right? When did sex become such an ugly thing that a woman needs to be smashed? Really, the world loves wickedness and hates righteousness. The opposite of the king. But he's still full of grace. And he still brings us to himself. How gracious is he? Look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness. You hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your... What? That must be a typo. I don't know the Bible's got typos. Therefore, God, your God. how, How does that work? I'm confused. So your throne, verse 6, oh God, is right. I understand. Fully I get that. But how can he say, therefore, God, your God? When did God get a God? I don't know God has a God. How many gods are there? Well, the Bible is very clear. There's only one God. What? What is going on here? There is only one God. So how can God your God? Well, the answer, I'll put it there for you. If you look down, I'll put a verse. Because you wouldn't understand this. Until Jesus came to earth, you wouldn't understand this. But if you go, look at that verse that I put down there for you. Hebrews chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Look at what it says. But... Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. It, it, it makes it all clear. And in case you're sitting there going, I still don't get it, I will explain it to you. The Son is God. The Father is God. And there is only one God. Astonishingly, this is the one God who exists in three persons. Only that makes sense of what the Bible says. And it makes sense of a million other things. And that's what Jesus taught. The Son is God. Yeah, Dwayne, where's the Spirit? I love it when people keep asking me that. And I'm happy to show them. Because look at verse 7. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I'll show it to you shortly. You're going to have to hold on. But there is the Holy Spirit. The oil of gladness is a common picture of the Holy Spirit. Hold on to that thought because I'm going to show it to you now. But in the meantime, look what happens. God the Father has anointed God the Son. Who wants... Let's play a game. What's another word for anointed? I know you know this. Messiah. 
The Messiah is the anointed one. In Greek, we say Christos, Christ. What we're being told here is that the Son is the Christ, the anointed one. And it's such good news because look what it says. God the Father has anointed God the Son with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I'm, I'm blown away that I should be called a companion of the King. In John 16, Jesus said, listen to this, I no longer call you servants. I call you companions, friends. This, he's so full of grace that the king is a friend, not of the rich, the powerful, and the influencers. He's a friend of sinners. That's how full of grace he is. But let's just to summarize this first point. Turn with me, if you look on your outlines, it's there for you to John chapter 3. I'll go there quickly because it's not there for me. But for you it'll be there. Have a look on your outlines. John 3, we'll just fly through this. I want to show you how this all comes together. And that's our first point. The bridegroom is blessed forever because of his triumphant grace. Look with me at John 3 from verse 28. John the Baptist is speaking. And I believe, and you'll see it, that he's getting all of this from Psalm 45. Let me show it to you. John 3, verse 28. Listen to what John the Baptist says. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. The Christ is the anointed one. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This is the Christian joy, the joy of the companion, when you become mates with the bridegroom. When you are friends with him. He must increase, but I must decrease. You are a bad best man if you dance better than the bridegroom. When you go to a wedding and you're the best man, try not to be the best man. Everyone knows, don't upstage the bridegroom. Well, John is saying, I must decrease because he must increase. He is the bridegroom. Now watch this, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. Guys like me, John's saying, he who is of the earth, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears testimony, witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. The only way you can say God is true is if you believe what Jesus says. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God and he gives the spirit without measure. There is the beautiful trinity working as one God. The oil of gladness. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. 
And so the poem finishes just with these, not the poem, this first section. Look at this. Your robes, we're back in Psalm 45, verse 8. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh, aloes, cassia, from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. The poem ends, that section of the poem, the bridegroom is blessed forever because of his triumphant grace, with the poet just spilling out happy words. Look at the words. Guitars, stringed instruments, myrrhs, aloes, cassias, fragrance, ivory palaces, ladies. It's, he's, go, he's going nuts. He's a poet. And he's like, this is the most ridiculously beautiful thing I've ever seen. Weddings are meant to be beautiful things. Don't you love it? Or am I just soft? Maybe I'm a romantic. But even if you watch a movie and a couple get married and they are poor, poor, poor. Picture the poor little peasant and the poor little dude. And she arrives looking like she always has because she's a peasant, can't afford nothing. But she's got a flower in her hair. And it's just like, it's meant to, that's all they can do. But they know. But you could go up a bit. And you could go to beach bum peasants, and he'll be in bodies, and, but at least it'll be his best bodies, and, and at least he would have showered that week. And if you go further up to your average wedding, the father has taken the father of the bride has got his second mortgage to afford the wedding. Because everyone does. We know it's meant to be glorious deep within us. We know it's meant to be glorious and if you go to other oh no it's just westerners are you kidding me i was privileged to go to a wedding in malaysia an indian wedding i've never seen so many colors in all my life it was the most glorious thing and there's what i must have taken three days on her or something and then go all the way to those of you who are ancient Charles and Diana, you know, or, or him and her, I don't know the rest. You know, it's meant to be glorious. Now, what are all those a picture of? Did we just make that? Did evolution, evolution just decided, hey, dude, you want to get married, it's got to be glorious, okay. Or is it a picture of the ultimate love story? And that's what you have here. How much more glorious will it be when Christ and his people are married? It'll be the wedding, the feast of the Lamb. And God the Father has not taken a second mortgage. He has spared no expense. But most beautiful of all, will be the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in all his grace and glory. It'll be the most beautiful, every eye in the universe, even those who like kite surfing, will look at him and go, I have never seen anything like that. And we'll stare at him for, obviously, why? 
Well, because he's wearing a Calvin Klein hair. You know, that's why. No. What is his beauty? Grace. We'll just stare at him because he's dripping grace everywhere. And as we stare at him, we'll turn and we'll look at the bride. And she'll be dirty. She could have at least taken the curlers out of her hair. She'll be unclean. She hasn't washed. Her clothes will be filthy. Her character will be terrible. Why is he marrying her? Could have done so much. Even e-harmony would have helped her. She'll be horrible. She'll have had multiple affairs. In In her pocket will be a mobile phone where she sent nudies to everyone. And she'll be drunk on self-love. And you'll be thinking, how could he marry her? And if that's what you're thinking, you haven't understood grace. Because grace changes everything. The bridegroom, and that, by the way, is our second point. The bride is beautiful forever because of his triumphant grace. The truth is, what I described is what some of you and me were. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were cleansed. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and our God by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. In other words, it took the whole Trinity to make you pretty. It took the whole Trinity to make you beautiful. For him. That is grace. And that's our last and quickly much shorter than the first point. The bride is beautiful forever because of his triumphant grace. We're not beautiful naturally, that is humanism. We're not beautiful by doing good deeds or being a good person, that is religion. We are beautiful by grace. Look at verse 9. At your right hand stands the queen. Oh, this gets to me because I... Anyway, in gold of Ophir. Which, by the way, those of you who don't know what Ophir is, nor do I. It, it just, it's gold from a very cool place where you get the best gold. Gold is precious, valuable. Oh my goodness. Jesus looks at his bride. She is precious to him. Precious to him. Gold from Ophir. Look where she's standing at his right hand. You know the whole New Testament says that. You are seated with Christ. 
in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 1. I think you need to change your mind. I, need, I think you should stop looking in the mirror and you should look in the Bible to see who you really are as a Christian. Look at verse 10. Change your mind. Hear, O daughter. Consider. Switch your brain on. Incline your ear because you won't see it with your eyes. You will not see it with your eyes. I'm in ministry. You go by your eyes. You're not going to love what you see. But listen. Incline your ear. Look what it says. Forget your people and your father's house. Forget it. Don't look at where you come from. Don't look at your roots. Philippians 3. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the high calling. Forget what lies behind you. Forget your people. Forget your father's house. 1 John. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Forget it. Let it go. Imagine a prostitute. Imagine someone on meth. Have you seen the police put up those ads? I've seen them at bus stops. And you look at someone who's been on meth for a long time. It's like just pimple or whatever. It, wow. And then sometimes they put the before and the after. But anyway, oh, man, that'll scare anybody. I think we should. Imagine this prostitute, and she's been on meth, got no teeth, just oozing out sores everywhere, giving her body to whoever's left that will pay for it. And along comes the king of a most vast empire who could have any girl he wants. And he decides to marry her. Because he's so rich and powerful, he can get the, what are those twits called, the Kardashians, he can get them to make her up or whatever. He spends everything to make her beautiful. And on that great wedding day, this ex-prostitute method comes walking down the aisle crying. As you would, right? And she's crying and everyone's like, oh, that's so beautiful. I love a good love story, you know. And darling, why are you crying? She must be so happy. And guess what? She tells you, I'm not crying because I'm happy. I miss the pavements. I miss sleeping rough. I miss my needles. I miss the pimp who used to beat me. And you're like, what? How could... That's what Christians do when we love this world and we forget where we're going. Forget it. Let it go should be a song about that. Christians forget what we've left behind. Look at verse 10. Forget your people, your father's house. The king will desire your beauty. God is most attracted to us when we are most attracted to Jesus. And we get everything. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Obey him. Because he loves you and everything he says is for your good. 
The people of Tyre. That's not a thing you put on a wheel. It's an ancient city. And it was like the richest city. So it's basically, you know, he's picking the richest people he can think of. And the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people. The meek will inherit the earth. That's what it's saying. All glorious, verse 13, is the princess in her chamber. With robes interwoven with gold. Don't you love, they haven't got married yet. Because look what it says. In many colored robes. She's, what, what this is saying is, the writer is saying, the bride of the king is already beautiful. We can't see it, but she's so beautiful. Even within her chamber. She hasn't got to the altar and the guy who's going to marry them yet. But she's already beautiful. And in many colored robes, she is led to the king. Look at this. With her virgin companions following behind her, with joy and gladness, they led along as they enter the palace of the king. Did you see it repeated twice? She is led to the king. Verse 15, with joy and gladness, they are led along. That word is powerful. It's not that she's lost her way. She is being drawn. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Here is the bride being led. The bridegroom is saying, come. And she says, what can I do? I've got to go. But she doesn't mean she turns into a robot, verse 15, with joy and gladness. Every step of the way is joy and gladness. And finally, at last, verse 15, they enter the palace of the king. At last, from Jundalup to the palace of the king. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I'm going to prepare a palace for you. When I come back, I will take you to be with me. And you will be with me forever. And so the bride enters the palace at last. So what about the future? You reckon the marriage will be a good one? But rock. No, here's the future. Verse 16. In place of your father's, will be your sons. Don't look back. Look forward. That's what it's saying. You will make them princes in all the earth. I'll cause your name to be remembered in all generations, forever and ever and ever going forward, not going back. Where do you get your name from? What's your surname? What's your family name? Where do you get it from? Okay, so mine... Now, some of you are going to laugh at me. But for the Australians, mine is Olivier. And for the Afrikaners, it's Olivier. But wherever, I can tell you where it comes from. Long, long ago, there were these Protestants. That is, they were Bible-believing people who were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. 
and they were chased out of France. They called Huguenots. And they jumped on ships looking for a place where they can practice their faith without persecution. And they sailed all the way down. Some of them went here, some went there. Some went to the tip of Africa. And they started a new colony. And they are called French Huguenots. And my name, Olivier, comes from that. That's where my surname comes. But when I look back, oh, Dwayne, you come from such illustrious heritage. What a dynasty. Actually, I come from absolute, I don't know, Sherry, dysfunction. I don't have grandparents. I don't have uncles. I don't have aunts. If there are some somewhere, they're probably in jail. I come from nothing. It is all I've got left in the world, other than my wife and my kid, is my dad and my sister, and they got nobody. It's total sin, mess, brokenness. But when I become a Christian, my surname becomes Christian. I am married to Christ. My identity doesn't come from there, which was a mess. My identity comes from the future where I will be with my Christ forever. If you call yourself a Christian, that's where you get your identity from. That's who you are. And the challenge for us this morning is very simple. You can only live for one family at a time. You can only live for one kingdom at a time. You can only try and build one dynasty at a time. And so you get to pick you get to choose which one will mean the most for you. I'll tell you which one will last forever. Look at the very last line. Verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, forever and ever in heaven. People will be going, oh, do you remember the Olivier's? What a family. No. Only one name will last forever. Jesus Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So this morning, there's only one thing to do. I'm going to keep this simple. Just say yes. That's all you have to do. It's not complicated. Just say yes. Jesus, I want to be yours. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my first love. I want you to be my identity. The bridegroom and his bride. Jesus, you are my first love because you loved me first. Why don't we bow our heads? I'll pray and I'm happy to take any questions. Just a couple of questions as we close off the year.